don't have enough time to sit down and read all the best Bitcoin articles? Well, let us read them for you. This is a Crypto Economy Quick Read. A total dependence on financial intermediaries to make uh, transactions to have commerce is essentially the capacity for them to institute whatever rule of law they choose without any engagement of the legal system, simply by exercising the power to exile anyone who disagrees with them from society. What is up, crew? Welcome back to the show. We are continuing our uh, quick read or long read, I guess, because we've got a multi-part piece here. And this will be part two. Um, I think we will be going until the final section, the moral case for electronic cash. Um, and uh, but this is going to be uh, this is going to be fun. We dig a little bit deeper, and we actually explore specific examples of where this is already happening, where we're seeing like uh, extra legal consequences and essentially intimidation. Uh, being used to silence speech, to to ruin or uh, uh, stand in the way of other people's freedom of association. So we're going to be covering that and quite a bit more in uh, what we are going over today. Um, and uh, there's a lot of footnotes. I'm only going to read, I think, probably one or two as we go through this. But know that there are literally a ton of uh, footnotes and uh, references to specific articles or research papers um, for like some of their cases like almost every time they give an example of something happening like someone being censored or uh, this could happen to this group they actually have uh, essentially a footnote showing exactly what has happened in the past they're using these examples specifically because they are actual examples that have occurred in uh, in the country so um just know that that resource is there and you can go to the actual pay, uh, uh, paper, the actual uh, report, the case for electronic cash, again, on coincenter.org and uh, find links to all of this stuff to dig further into it. All right, so uh, that's all uh, for anybody who had, did not listen to yesterday's episode. We are literally jumping right into the middle of this thing. It is part two uh, at the section and Open Society, and we are reading Jerry Brito's the case for electronic cash. Um, it is a report by Coin Center. So uh, go back and listen to part one if you haven't. But uh, other than that, without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into part two, starting with the open society. The opposite of an authoritarian state like China is an open society, the hallmark of which is a free competition of ideas that drives progress. In an open society, challenges to status quo thinking are not only tolerated, they are valued and protected. An open society eschews monism, quote, the ancient belief that there is a single harmony of truths into which everything, if it is genuine, in the end must fit, end quote, in favor of pluralism, a celebration of variety and diversity within society. An open society works only if individuals are free to engage in critical thinking, to develop 
communicate, critique, and accept or reject ideas. That in turn requires freedom of thought and expression and association, which is why open societies tend to be liberal democracies that guarantee civil liberties under the rule of law. The equality and dignity of individuals are also paramount values in liberal open societies. Persons are equal in worth and rights and should be treated by their government and their fellow citizens with dignity. In other words, not as a means to an end, but as ends in themselves. The case for an open society based on liberal democracy has been made well elsewhere, so we will not rehearse it here and will instead assume that the reader finds its relative merit uncontroversial. The case we will make, however, is that cash is a necessary condition for the existence of an open society. That is, that a cashless society cannot fully be an open society, because as we have seen, eliminating cash means that all transactions are necessarily intermediated, and intermediation undermines privacy and autonomy, two values necessary for the individual liberty and human dignity that undergird an open society. Privacy is essential to freedom of thought, speech, and association, not only because it prevents would-be censors from discovering thought crimes, but also because of the chilling effects that come from knowing one is being watched, especially by an authority. In his excellent history of the Third Reich, Thomas Childers explains how the German people were changed by the fear of being watched. Quote, The American novelist Thomas Wolfe, who had traveled widely in Germany during the Weimar years, was shocked on a return trip in the mid-1930s by the dramatic changes that Hitler had wrought. He could hardly recognize the country he thought he knew. Here was an entire nation, he wrote, infested with the contagion of an ever-present fear. It was a kind of creeping paralysis which twisted and blighted all human relations. Yet thinking back on day-to-day life in the Third Reich, most Germans did not recall being consciously afraid. Instead, they lived with a subliminal fear, developing a sixth sense for survival. Learning what to say, when, and to whom was essential in daily life. A quick, almost reflexive glance over the shoulder to see who might be watching or listening nearby was dubbed the Deuterbleich, the German glance. Martha Dodd, the daughter of the American ambassador, recalled that whenever we wanted to talk, we had to look around corners and behind doors, watch for the telephone and speak in whispers. Many were convinced that their telephone receivers were rigged to act as transmitters so that private conversations at home could be listened to by the authorities. One defense was to place a tea cozy over the telephone to muffle conversations. Berlin merchants couldn't keep them on the shelves. End quote. Additionally, without privacy, without the ability to control what one reveals to others about oneself, it is more difficult to avoid becoming an instrument in someone else's design to preserve one's dignity. For example, consider this story published in the New York Times Magazine in 2012. Quote, A man walked into a Target outside Minneapolis and demanded to see a manager. He was clutching coupons that had been sent to his daughter, and he was angry according to an employee who participated in the conversation. My daughter got this in the mail, he said. She's still in high school and you're sending her coupons for baby clothes and cribs? Are you trying to encourage her to get pregnant? 
The manager didn't have any idea what the man was talking about. He looked at the mailer. Sure enough, it was addressed to the man's daughter and contained advertisements for maternity clothing, nursery furniture, and pictures of smiling infants. The manager apologized and then called a few days later to apologize again. On the phone, though, the father was somewhat abashed. I had a talk with my daughter, he said. It turns out there's been some activities in my house I haven't been completely aware of. She's due in August. I owe you an apology. End quote. How did Target know that the girl was pregnant before she had told her father? When you shop at Target, you are assigned a unique identifier that is used to track everything you buy. Target does not seek your consent to do this. Simply using a credit card is enough to let Target start identifying and profiling you. By statistically comparing the shopping habits of women who had voluntarily signed up for Target's baby registry program, thus known to be pregnant, with those of the broader public, the retailer can predict not only who is pregnant, but, quote, also estimate her due date to within a small window so Target could send coupons timed to the very specific stages of her pregnancy, end quote. It's tempting to think, so what? Although the girl did not willingly reveal her pregnancy, Target gleaned the fact from her purchasing history, which is a history of voluntary interactions, even if the girl could not foresee what they would reveal. And it was indeed a fact, after all, that she was pregnant, and not something she would be able to keep from her father for long. There are deeper issues, however, and that is betrayed by how Target thinks about its surveillance program. Andrew Pohl the target statistician who developed the pregnancy prediction program had the task put to him by the marketing department this way, quote, If we wanted to figure out if a customer is pregnant, even if she didn't want us to know, can you do that? End quote. As the New York Times reported, quote, Using data to predict a woman's pregnancy, Target realized soon after Paul perfected his model could be a public relations disaster. So the question became, how could they get their advertisements into expectant mothers' hands without making it appear they were spying on them? How do you take advantage of someone's habits without letting them know you're studying their lives? End quote. A Target executive explained the solution. Quote, we started mixing in all these ads for things we knew pregnant women would never buy, so the baby ads looked random. We put an ad in for a lawnmower next to diapers. We put a coupon for wine glasses next to infant clothes. That way, it looked like all the products were chosen by chance. And we found out that as long as a pregnant woman thinks she hasn't been spied on, she'll use the coupons. She just assumes that everyone else on her block got the same mailer for diapers and cribs. As long as we don't spook her, it works. End quote. Not only did Target seek to gather information about individuals, even if the individuals did not want to give up the information, they also sought to hide what they were doing because they understood it would be seen as an affront to human dignity. They were right. In the particular case of the young woman, Target's surveillance inadvertently robbed her of her ability to decide when and how to tell her father about her pregnancy. Other examples abound. Companies may not always divulge their targeting advertising campaigns like Target has, but much modern marketing relies on such impersonal data-driven methods. Firms assuage the public of the, quote, creepiness factor by pointing out that their data sets are de-individualized, which means that the advertising profiles they build for people are not directly connected to their name. Someone is merely potential customer number 46274, 
unmarried, high school student with likely interest in baby items and frozen foods, or whatever the case may be. However, since that profile is still tied to one's identity and used to try to affect their behavior, the fact that a literal name is not associated may be cold comfort. Companies pay for access to this data to try and coax people to behave the way they want, namely by buying more of their product or services. When advertising merely broadcasts general price or product information to the public, it can be a helpful tip or a minor annoyance. But when marketing is driven by a comprehensive secret profile of imputed lifestyle attributes, it can become invasive and troubling. The case of a major retailer targeting pregnant women with a campaign to ensure future consumer loyalty is alarming, but not all behavioral marketing is necessarily sinister. The point is that a world without cash gives consumers less of an ability to voluntarily exit such schemes, since all of their purchases would be intermediated and therefore up for grabs to marketing profilers who may not respect our privacy and autonomy. Privacy's fundamental relationship to human dignity must be emphasized. Samuel Warren and Louis Brandeis' foundational article, The Right to Privacy, not only noted the physical and pecuniary harms dealt by privacy violations, but also, quote, spiritual wrongs, injuries to, quote, estimates of ourselves, assaults upon our own feelings, and blows to our inviolate personality. That is, our human dignity to which the authors directly refer in their conclusion. We do not desire privacy merely for its beneficial effects. The dignity it affords is a fundamental part of being human. Given that consumers don't affirmatively consent to retail surveillance, what can one possibly do to avoid losing one's privacy? The answer is to pay with cash, to transact anonymously. Cash serves as an escape valve in our increasingly intermediated and therefore surveilled world. It's not that it should be the only option, or even the option one should choose most of the time, but it should be an option. Without it, there is no choice but to have one's every purchase be watched and recorded and the information used without one's consent. Without cash, there is no exit. No chance for the kind of dignity-preserving privacy that undergirds an open society. Cash is also necessary to retain agency and autonomy. Autonomy can be understood as the power to make decisions for oneself without interference from others. It's the ability to try things one's way, to succeed and be rewarded, or to make mistakes and learn from them. As with personal privacy, without individual autonomy, there can be no meaningful open society. The law surrounding prior restraint of publication in the United States is a good illustration of how an open society respects autonomy. It holds that while one may be held to account for one's speech after the fact, censorship before publication is not allowed. This ancient rule of Anglo-American law was explained by English jurist William Blackstone this way, quote, the liberty of the press is indeed essential to the nature of a free state, but this consists in laying no previous restraints upon publications, and not in freedom from censure for criminal matter when published. 
Every free man has an undoubted right to lay what sentiments he pleases before the public. To forbid this is to destroy the freedom of the press. But if he publishes what is improper, mischievous, or illegal, he must take the consequence of his own temerity. End quote. Even when the government might know that one is going to publish something potentially harmful or illegal, it is not allowed to prevent one from publishing it, though it may seek to punish one for it after the fact. That is, it must respect one's autonomy. As the Supreme Court has put it, quote, If it can be said that a threat of criminal or civil sanctions after publication chills speech, prior restraint freezes it, at least for the time. End quote. The same logic that applies to speech is applicable to association and other freedoms valued by an open society. Respect for autonomy is how such freedoms are given meaning. A legal right is useless if one can be prevented from exercising it. The more intermediated a society is, however, the easier and more tempting it becomes to affect prior restraints on the free exercise of rights. In more liberal societies, censorship is typically not aimed at mainstream views, but rather at speech that is unpopular and controversial. That is, speech, the protection of which, is the hallmark of an open society. It's therefore no surprise that a target of attempts to use financial intermediaries for prior restraint has been the National Rifle Association, or the NRA. The NRA may be a controversial organization, but it is certainly one rooted in the constitutional bedrock of our open society. After all, for good or ill, the NRA is a free association of individuals that exists to engage in speech to defend a constitutional right. The group is not just a legal and legitimate voice, it speaks for millions of Americans. Someone who values an open society and also disagrees with the NRA would seek to meet speech with speech and ideas with ideas. They would not, however, seek to silence the NRA from speaking at all. Preventing, quote, unhealthy views from being expressed is what you would expect to see in an authoritarian, closed society like China. Yet this is how a press release from the state of New York issued last year began. Quote, Governor Andrew M. Cuomo today directed the Department of Financial Services to urge insurance companies, New York State chartered banks, and other financial services companies licensed in New York to review any relationships they may have with the National Rifle Association and other similar organizations. Upon this review, the companies are encouraged to consider whether such ties harm their corporate reputations and jeopardize public safety. End quote. If the governor's request was too subtle, Financial Services Superintendent Maria Volo made it clear later in the same press release stating, quote, DFS urges all insurance companies and banks doing business in New York to join the companies that have already discontinued their arrangements with the NRA, end quote. This is remarkable. Governor Cuomo is telling financial intermediaries over which he has serious power that they must cut off one of his political opponents, not because that opponent broke any law, but because it engages in speech and advocacy at odds with the governor's views. Footnote. The DFS went beyond idle threats. It fined two insurance companies, 
Lockton Companies, and Illinois Union Insurance Company, $7 million and $1.3 million respectively for underwriting an NRA-branded insurance program called CarryGuard. End footnote. While the governor cannot simply ban the NRA's speech, he clearly feels less constrained to threaten intermediaries that he regulates and whose continued operations depend on permission from the state. Because New York is the world's financial hub, the state has authority over just about every bank and fintech firm with operations in the country. As a result, losing access to New York-regulated financial intermediaries is practically a death sentence for any advocacy group. As the NRA put it in a suit filed against Cuomo, quote, If the NRA is unable to collect donations from its members, safeguard the assets endowed to it, apply its funds to cover media buys and other expenses integral to its political speech, and obtain basic corporate insurance coverage, it will be unable to exist as a not-for-profit or pursue its advocacy mission, end quote. This is not just a viewpoint-based prior restraint on one organization's ability to speak. It is also a restraint on the autonomy of millions of citizens who wish to make perfectly legal and legitimate contributions to engage in free association and collective speech. Such prior restraint is only possible because of our dependence on financial intermediaries. While physical cash could serve as a last resort, It is not a practical alternative in our increasingly digital world. It is therefore the reliance on intermediaries that is at odds with individual autonomy, an important basis for an open society. The risk to autonomy posed by a dependence on financial intermediaries exists even if there were no egregious government actions like Cuomo's. In an article published months before the governor's edict, New York Times columnist Andrew Ross Sorkin made the case that the financial industry should, of its own accord, use its, quote, leverage over the gun industry to, quote, effectively set new rules for the sale of guns in America, end quote. If MasterCard were to bar customers from using their credit cards for certain gun purchases, he wrote, quote, assault weapons would be eliminated from virtually every firearm store in America because otherwise the sellers would be cut off from the credit card system. End quote. While one may not like guns or speech advocating for the right to bear arms, it is important to recognize that maintenance of an open society is not compatible with financial intermediaries having this much power. Dependence on intermediaries means not only constant and unavoidable surveillance, but also the power to thwart individual autonomy. Today, it may be gun advocates that are targeted, But tomorrow, it could be abortion providers that are dropped by financial intermediaries. Groups such as Muslim charities, sexual fetishist communities, and socialist booksellers have already experienced such extra-legal sanctioning. It's no surprise that the American Civil Liberties Union filed a brief in support of the NRA. Cash and financial intermediaries both have important roles in an open society. Cash affords people with autonomy and privacy. Financial intermediaries provide convenience. Both structures, however, present challenges. Cash can be used to facilitate crimes or evade taxes. Financial intermediaries surveil our every transaction and can limit what we are allowed to do with our own funds, becoming de facto legislators 
judges, and juries. The challenge for open societies is to allow both structures to coexist while maintaining a legal system that proportionately addresses downsides. Another challenge for open societies is to ensure that, as more commerce is undertaken on the internet and via mobile devices, we maintain an escape valve that allows individuals to safeguard their privacy and autonomy. One way to do this is to foster the ongoing development of electronic cash. The Moral Case for Electronic Cash Alright, let's stop this here for today. Uh, we'll hit our sponsor real quick and then jump into some commentary on what we've covered. All right, hope you guys enjoyed part two of the case for electronic cash. In the final section is the moral case for electronic cash and then uh, the conclusion. Uh, so we will be finishing this up tomorrow, um, but uh, I'm a little bit short on time today, so I figured I was going to go ahead and stop here. I got some other things I need to get done. But even though uh, most of today's discussion was an extension of what we talked about yesterday, there were a couple of really good, good points to hit. One, I actually, um, I'd never heard these uh, terms exactly used this way before, um, but monism versus pluralism, about how uh, monism was that there is a uh, single truth and everything that we find must fit into it. And uh, pluralism is the idea of embracing variety and uh, many different ways of thinking or uh, many different categories to put things in the world. Um, and uh, uh, I find that interesting because I, I'm, I was kind of leading to, like I always felt that there is a one, there is a knowable objective truth in the world. And I feel like that's kind of more monism. But at the exact same time, I think pluralism is the only way to find that objective truth. Is that like think of it like a like a uh, like those pictures in the mycelium uh, series by Brandon Quidam? You've got uh, uh, you've got this fungus that grows uh, grows out tiny tendrils in every single direction, um, and then and then when it finds food or it finds uh, something that it can benefit from or it finds some degree of truth, whatever that is in the context of, uh, like, as a comparison to ideas, um, something that aligns with the world and sustains itself, suddenly, uh, suddenly it all redirects back toward that and then starts the process again of spreading out from there with little tendrils in every direction so that it ends up creating this, this kind of web from... Uh, like useful, uh, useful resource to useful resource in the same way that like our ideas in searching for the truth, we find these little pieces of it that tell us a slightly clearer story or that put us more in harmony with what's going on around us and uh, make us realize either the consequences or the costs that we are, uh, we're going and, and we readjust we readjust to something better, to something new, to something that saves us time, that frees us. And that's how, like, so it's, it's funny. I just thought that it was interesting dichotomy, um, a little bit, you know, off the topic, topic specifically of a cashless society or electronic cash. But it was kind of cool. And I like the idea of uh, pluralism, but I still think it's, I don't even think it's incompatible, really, 
as far as a way to embrace the world or way to treat society in a pluralist nature, even if you're a, a uh, monist, I guess you could say, a, someone who thinks there is one truth that everything will eventually fit into, it's just how do we find that truth? Because we have to leave ourselves open to the fact that everyone is wrong, myself included. We are all, we are all going to be proven wrong somehow, some way, sooner or later. And because nothing stops changing. And, uh, and there's just no, no way to be perfectly right. Um, so that was just something that uh, sparked a little bit of conversation in my head while I was going through it. Uh, then the other one, though, just in the kind of the case of intermediaries and their power, uh, that if we reach some sort of situation where, um, I, can't, I can't remember what the, what the numbers, I think it was like 2% or something, I believe, in China are now using cash. Um, so it's just fallen like crazy, crazy low to the point that intermediaries have practical total control. The, the industry of intermediaries has total control over what is going on. And uh, the, what that allows to, to have complete dependence on those financial intermediaries is to basically... It's granting them the capacity to institute whatever laws that they want. They essentially become the gatekeepers to our interaction with other people. If all of our interactions are online, if all of our commerce is done online or through you know, some electronic means, they become the gatekeepers between everything that we want to accomplish. Like There's nothing, almost nothing that we do in our lives that does not require trade and exchange with someone else. So to have that, that is, that is ultimate power. Those are the two most unbelievable powers. The power to control the money, to siphon value from the money, and the power to control it, it control its direction and where it can be used. Um, and it would allow them, it would l- allow those financial intermediaries to actually, to, to in a sense, institute laws to completely obliterate freedoms within their commerce networks um, uh, without, without any legal action. With any, with, it, it just completely undermines the entire institution of our supposed you know, social contract uh, by making it their contract. Um, you know, they would supplant the, um, the Constitution with their terms of service. And that's, that's a really scary precedent. And we're talking about a situation where there is no escape valve. There is no cash that allows an alternative. Um, and this would also mean that uh, governments that, that have no, and I would say arguably it's quite obvious that the, like, there's hardly any respect for the people from the government. Um, like they're treated as this nuisance that is just in the way of the things that they want to accomplish. And anyone who disagrees with them, like, like disagreeing with people over a political reason is essentially the quickest way to start a fight now. Um, it's the, the disrespect is deep-seated on every side. And like, so arguably, anyone, any, if they come in, if that's the mental mindset, if that's, if that's what people, how people are treating it in the real world, when they get into the position of power, they are not going to feel restrained in doing exactly what New York did in the uh, example uh, listed in the um, in, in the report was to simply threaten 
insurance companies and threaten the financial intermediaries. There's just just casually just throw it out there that you should reassess what your reputation looks like. By the way, we hold the reins of whether or not you're a business if you don't censor this person, if you don't stop facilitating transactions for these reasons. And that's a dangerous, dangerous precedent to set, particularly when the mindset is so disrespectful and divisive and just by default hating people. Um, It's a scary environment with an unbelievable amount of power being thrown around. Um, so, uh, so in the context of like the girl uh, in Target um, uh, or who, you know, was purchased, I actually read um, some piece I, or it was in a book. I wish I could remember where, um, but they dug really deep into this, this topic and, and this particular case is that uh, there were a bunch of different metrics like the fact that um, she was buying unscented candles um, because like smells start to bother uh, pregnant women, and like it, there were just so many little things. Uh, they talked about like these markers that would basically expose someone or could suggest that someone was uh, uh, pregnant without them, you know, obviously wanting or trying to reveal this information to anyone. And I think the key takeaway from that story. It's not necessarily that they're using that information. Like that's actually, I actually have a uh, Target card and I actually do it under the explicit knowledge. I know that they are using any information like from those purchases uh, to sell me stuff. And I'm not really concerned about it because I don't go to Target often and I do like a lot of their products. But I would have a problem knowing If I wasn't just completely aware that I know that that's going on all the time, that's what all those cards and the VIP club, you know, at Food Line and all that stuff, that's what that's for. Like, I know I am just getting a minor discount in exchange for giving them all of my information explicitly on my purchases. So, but without knowing that, this girl lost the control to tell her father, like, a massive life-changing, like, truth. Like, she, she lost her ability to control when and where and how she told her father that. And that's not an, there's no easy way to tell that story to your dad, you know? Like, I can't, I can't imagine being a, a girl, a young girl in that situation. Like, that would freak me out. Like, it just, just an un, unimaginable situation it would be terrible. But the fact that it is done in her way regardless of how difficult the truth is going to be to face, that's extremely important. I mean, think about it that, think about that in the context of uh, someone coming out, that they are gay, that, um, I mean, anything that, you know, that would receive public shaming, and unfortunately, people are not really nice. People love to publicly shame others. Um, it's, and Twitter and social media has not made that truth any less a reality. In fact, arguably, it's basically, you know, poured gasoline on the fire. So it's, it's a dangerous, again, it's, it's not healthy. And uh, the consequences are really far-reaching. Think of the consequences of this just in, in some political atmosphere. I mean, the idea that all of our past purchases could be scrutinized and then told as a part of a narrative that takes place decades after the actual context of what happened. Like, I mean, the number of people that are being called evil, 
and literally being drugged through the dirt, like their professional lives are destroyed, or worse, just because of some stupid comment or joke from years ago, is almost unbelievable. There's kind of this, like this default assumption now that, uh, and, and I guess it's not now, it's just always has been, it's just now we have all of this information in front of us to choose between. It's this it's the ultimate confirmation bias machine that you can uh, like just search through the, the sea of gravel to find those handful of shark's teeth that give you five facts to back up your opinion that ignores the whole mountain of uh, other facts that stand in the face of it. It's like, being, it's like the, all the quote-unquote facts that prove the earth is flat, but they just ignore so many thousands and thousands of things. It's like the ability to just not listen to things is how to have a good foundation for your, uh, for your opinion. But uh, so it's kind of like, like people, people just think that they can know and determine everything about someone's soul, that they can just, they can just write this entire narrative of who they are as a person from just one tiny little snippet of, conversation like one half of a sentence out of context that's 10 years old and as humans that is one thing that we truly suck at um more than anything else we suck at judging each other really really hard we we're almost never right when we take a first glance or just this half a listen to someone particularly when already given a negative context and then actually having any idea of who, who that person really is. Um, like, we're, we get to see, there's only so much we can see. There are full lives with every single person that we think we know something about. Whole, whole lives that we only get to see seconds of. We get to look at, look at this tiny sliver of something in a huge sequence of so, countless events pulled without context from just one of millions of conversations somewhere in that entire sequence of life-changing events and uh, learning and growing, and then honing on on the specific wording in the context that the opposition to it gets to introduce before giving the the piece of uh, conversation. Like, that's crazy. And... The fact that those consequences are so far-reaching just for something that someone has spoken about, like that loss of privacy is really dangerous. Um, granted, you know, most of those contexts, most of that stuff is public stuff. It's people who are in the public eye and have been recording and publishing and doing all kinds of stuff for years and years and years. Um, but, but you see the danger of it. It, it, it displays... It, uh, demonstrates that's the word it demonstrates the the danger of that type of power and now to think that this is being given to financial intermediaries and they have exclusive control over it that they're selling it to other people that it can be used in a political context and now we know everything that everybody has ever purchased now we can figure out all of their dirty secrets all of their weird fetishes what kind of porn they watch they've ever purchased a sex toy or I mean just the power to socially obliterate someone is deeply connected to a loss of privacy um so it's just really important to realize um 
exactly how far reaching the effects of seemingly a simple change can be in how we do business and commerce. And cash is such a critical part. Those, those elements of ownership, those parts of independent or of property rights and exchange that are in fact yours, that are completely yours, that are completely under your control and allow you the degree of full autonomy are extremely important in the fight uh, against corruption and authoritarianism. And exactly those kinds of things that enable that, even without the work of some totalitarian government. Um, so I guess we will stop there. I don't need to go any further. I've already, I've already gone on way longer than I, want to, I meant to. Uh, but I uh, hope you guys enjoyed that episode. That was part two of the case for electronic cra- cash crash. And we will be back tomorrow to finish it out and uh, conclude with another little bit of uh, commentary on the moral case for electronic cash. Until then, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss uh, this, uh, the end of this piece, as well as all the other ocean of things that we cover on this show, all about Bitcoin. And uh, also don't forget to check out coincenter.org where you can stay up on uh, tons of great work being done and news around like policy and legal uh, uh, frameworks for Bitcoin and blockchain all over the place, and um, and a lot of other great stuff just like this uh, report by Jerry Brito, uh, which you should follow him on Twitter as well. Um, I think he it's J E R R Y B R I T O. You can find him just by searching Coin Center, I'm sure, but uh, I can't remember his tag off the top of my head right now. But I will link to that in the show notes. So uh, don't forget to check out CryptoEconomy.life where you'll be able to find all of this stuff in full when we get it done. And I will see you next time. I will talk to you next time uh, on the Crypto Economy Podcast. Take it easy, guys. Thank you.